6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapter 1. We're going to start a new book tonight, the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, an incredible book, widely misunderstood. Victor Hugo, the famous author, called it the greatest masterpiece of the human mind. That's quite a statement by by a, a very professional guy. Its style is very unique. It's actually an epic poem. Uh, it's probably comparable in a sense, like the Iliad or the Odyssey, what have you. Its style is such that it may have been originally, long, long ago, presented as a drama. Because most of it is in poetry, framed by some prose. The prose is almost like program notes. You know, if you go to an opera or something like that, you often have notes that come up in front or sometimes behind it to explain it. It's, it's, it's very similar to that. But despite its very elevated and elaborate style, uh, it's a uh, all about a real person. Job is not just a figure of literature of some kind. He is a, a very real person. He is mentioned by Ezekiel along in the same phrase, if you will, with Noah and Daniel. So just as Noah was real and Daniel, of course, was real, uh, so was Job. He's also mentioned by James in the New Testament. In fact, we'll make reference to that here shortly. The vocabulary, there's much discussion among experts about Job's, about the translation, because it's a very, very um, uh, elegantly written uh, piece, although very, very early. It's the, as I say, the earliest book in the Bible. There's over 110 words that are not found anywhere else. Uh, in the Old Testament. And that's a larger number of what they call the hapax uh, legoma, um, uh, legomena, the, the words that are not used anywhere else. It's the largest number than any other Old Testament book. The vocabulary is very elegant. For example, there's five different words for lions. There's six different words for traps, six different words for darkness, and so forth. We'll find in it all kinds of things. Names of constellations. In fact, we'll discover some things about the constellations that you probably don't know, even if you were an astronomer. We'll come to that when we get there. It has names of metals, precious stones. He clearly was familiar with the anatomy of these giant beasts. It includes the technical language of law courts, technical language from the occupations of mining and hunting, has references to insects, reptiles, birds, beasts, weapons, military strategies, musical instruments, means of travel, Geography, whirlwinds, dew, dawn, darkness, clouds, rain, all these things are quite rich in their expression. It also has a surprising richness of both similes and metaphors. As an example, the brevity of life is depicted by a weaver's shuttle one place, one's breath another place, a cloud, a shadow, a runner, a falcon, a flower. 
the, the language is very, very elegant, very sophisticated. And uh, we'll discover that Job is probably one of the richest, most powerful men of his time. Now, along with this poetic parallelism, which you'll find all through it, where, that's where you have two lines where the second line completes or con- contrasts with the first, very typical pattern in Hebrew poetry. It also has strophes, which are groups of verses that uh, have a rhythmic pattern all through the thing. So much so that Tennyson, the famous poet, called this the greatest poem of both ancient and modern times. Now, we'll miss all that because we're obviously going to confine our concerns with just the translation. But for those that uh, are expert in the language, it's a very, very elegant, uh, uniquely structured document. We speak of the names of God, but in the book of Job, we will find Elohim, El, Eloah, Adonai, Yehovah, or Yehovah or Yahweh, however you wish, and Shaddai. Elohim is God the creator, in other words, carrying out God's will. El, the name of God, is God the omnipotent, carrying out his work. Aloha is God that's worshipped, the living God, that's in contrast to idols and such. There's the word Adonai, which is God the ruler and uh, of the earth. In fact, the whole earth, not just his chosen people. And uh, Yehovah, or Yehovah, or however you choose to pronounce it, God the eternal one, he who is, who was, and always will be, or, or is to come. The self-existent God who stands in a covenant relationship with his own people. And then Shaddai, which actually means breath, but means God the all-bountiful. Some people say God the almighty, but it's really... Not merely almighty as regards power, but all bountiful as regards his resources. In fact, the term actually, as I say, is the Hebrew, uh, led to the Hebrew word for breast. The languages are mostly Hebrew, but also Akkadian, Arabic, Aramaic, Sumerian, Ugaritic, and there's many other, many, it's an amalgam of many ancient languages, which makes the, the translations a special challenge. But if you get into that, and I'll just use one example that I think is fascinating, you find Hebrew idioms. The trick in this is to translate Hebrew idioms into our idioms, not literally. Sometimes a literal translation causes you to miss it unless you know the idioms. Idioms are the key thing. One of the Hebrew idioms is a verb for accept. It's the word dashin, which technically means turn to ashes. To accept a sacrifice, God turned it to ashes. And it gives us a clue as to how Abel knew that his member in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, that uh, Abel knew that his offering was accepted. How? Scholars believe, because there are several references to this, that in those days God actually accepted it with fire from heaven. That's how Cain knew his wasn't. And that's why they had the, you know, the, 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 the animosity and so forth. In fact, we even find that this having respect to Abel's offering uh, uh, is how he obtained a witness that he was righteous, as he, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament confirms. We do have a book here that's by a single author. It's not an amalgam by editors. It's a single author from the interdependence of the design. And then the big speculation comes, when was this book written? We're not sure. There's a tremendous range of guesses by by, uh, scholars. Um, There's a lot of evidence to indicate that the book was during the time of the patriarchs, maybe as old as Abraham himself. There's no mention of the law or Israel and so forth, yet there are sacrifices. That's interesting. The idea of sacrifices preceded the law of of Moses and so on. There's no mention of other gods. It's interesting. This ancient book 
takes for granted one God. There isn't an issue of, of, of false gods and so forth. Now, there's, there's a, a lot of clues as to when it was. One is the length of Job's life. He was probably about 60 when all these things started to happen because his children are grown, and yet he, grows, he, he lives 140 years after the events of this book. And so that would imply he's got several hundred years, which is about compares very favorably with Abraham's father, Terah, who lived to be at 205. Abra, by, you know, as you look at those patriarchs, they get, they, their longevities get shorter. Terah was 205, Abram was 175, Isaac 180, Jacob 147, Joseph 110. They got shorter since. So that age implies, uh, in the absence of other evidence, that he's probably, it precedes Abram, maybe in, in uh, Terah's father. So, I mean, Abram's father. Uh, he may have overlapped Noah, which is 350 years before the flood, uh, or Shem, 502 years. Abraham may have been born only 292 years after the flood. These things overlap. It's very interesting sometimes when you study your Bibles, take those ages, you know, and they're, they're related to, and to see how, how fascinating those long lives also cause some interesting overlaps. And it's worth, uh, gives a whole different perspective to look into that. We'll notice that in the book, wealth is measured by livestock and uh, not by the number of Mercedes in the garage or something like that. Um, so this is very typical of the idioms in the days of Abraham and Jacob and so forth. We hear about two tribes, the Sabians and the Chaldeans, are nomads in the time of Job. They were not in later years. So that's also another clue of its antiquity, very early. Job was priest of his family. So a national priest, priesthood was not in existence yet. And uh, there's a Hebrew word twice. It says uh, it says a piece of money. That Hebrew idiom is only used twice, and it's both elsewhere in the Bible only of, jo- of J- in the days of Jacob. And uh, musical instruments, the timbrel, the harp, the lyre, the, or the, the flute, are also mentioned in Genesis uh, uh, as early as Genesis four, also in Genesis thirty-one. Job's daughters were heirs to the estate, which means this was not after Moses; it was earlier. And there's similar, there are also similar literary works they've discovered in Mesopotamia about the same time. Uh, there's no reference to any of the Mosaic institutions. There's no priesthood, laws, tabernacles, special religious days, any of that. So it obviously predates all of that. And the, the name Shaddai, which we, we typically translate God of the Almighty, is used 31 times in the book of Job, uh, 17 times elsewhere in the New Testament all put together. It's a very prominent name there. And uh, now the other clue is the personal and place names that are associated uh, with the book of Job are also associated with the age of the patriarchs, J- Abraham and so forth. And I could go through these and bore you to death, but basically um, Sheba, is, uh, which means oath or uh, sometimes also can mean seven. Uh, it was a kingdom in Arabia, among other things. And uh, the Sabians from Sheba are mentioned in Genesis 25 and elsewhere many times in Job. Sheba, in fact, was uh, uh, in southern Arabia, and uh, the Sabians of classical geography carried on trade with the spices uh, uh, with people all over the uh, ancient world. Uh, they were Semites uh, speaking some particular dialects of South, Ara- uh, South Arabia. And uh, it later becomes a monarchy in the days of Queen of Sheba that visits Solomon and all of that. Uh, we'll hear a lot about Tema, which is, means technically means south or desert. Um, it's a... Uh, uh, a place that uh, is about 250 miles southeast of Edom on, on the route between Damascus and Mecca and uh, in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. We'll constantly find these place names and things all seem to associate with Arabia, especially northern Arabia, especially northeast Arabia, Edom and that area. So somehow that's the domain of all of this. Um, 
one of the key players, one of the first of the three key uh, so-called friends of, of uh, Job, Eliphaz, uh, is uh, uh, he's one of the guys that visited Job in his affliction. He was a Temanite, that is a native Teman in Idumea or Edom. Um, he's the first that enters into a debate with Job. Much of the bulk of the book are these debates, and we're, we won't go through all that in excessive detail, but uh, that's, the, that's the core of the book. Um, Eliphaz's language is uh, more delicate and gentle than his other buddies, but he still imputes to Job, tries to say Job's all his problems are because of his sin and so forth. And uh, we could go on. Now, Job itself is a very common name in, in, in about 2000 B.C. in that region, um, so it's hard to pin anything else down. Um, so much for that. The uh, first part of the book that we're going to touch on tonight will be like an introduction, gives us an awareness of a conversation that Job didn't know about. As we study the book of Job, you need to realize the insight that we'll get right up front is one that Job didn't have. We're going to be treated to this dialogue between God and Satan, where the whole thing is sort of a contest is proposed. Job didn't know that. And as you study this, we need to, uh, the book, let's, let's try to keep that in mind. We have this strange sort of challenge. And uh, by the way, it's God that challenges Satan, not the other way around. We'll, we'll highlight that in a minute. Then the bulk of the book is uh, Job's three friends. During all these troubles, he has these three friends that, quote, comfort him, close quote. As we often joke, if you have friends like that, you don't need enemies. Because they're all uh, being his friends, but trying to explain that all his problems are because of his sin, or this, that, and the other thing. And and, and, and finally, at the end of things, uh, God Himself answers for Job and puts those guys where, where they belong. But there's a fourth guy that everybody overlooks, a very mysterious guy. We'll talk about that, Elihu. He's a fourth friend that also comments, "God does not rebuke him." There's a great mystery as to what that's really all about, and we'll deal, that, deal with that when we get there. But then at the end, when God answers for Job, is one of the most precious passages in the Bible. There's a science quiz given to Job and his friends by God himself. And tucked away in that science quiz are all kinds of discoveries. It's actually, there is more um, on the creation of the world in Job than in the book of Genesis. So those of you, those I should say those of us that have sort of a technical bent will discover in every nook and cranny all kinds of little interesting surprises. There are dinosaurs, both aquatic and land dinosaurs, in the book of Job. Because where are the dinosaurs of the Bible? They're there in the book of Job. And of course, uh, Satan's challenge goes defeated because Job does pretty well. <laughs> now, where there is so much misinformation... And I won't ask you to write, if we were a class, I'd ask you to take a piece of paper and write down before we start what you think the main message in Job is. And I'd be willing to predict that more than nine out of ten will be wrong. Job is why do the innocent suffer? That's the common cliche you see in commentaries or Bible handbooks. Job's all about why do the innocent suffer? Well, if that's the problem, it never gets answered. That's not what Job is about, Really? Job is about the oldest lesson in the world. Job is about the most important lesson that is possible for us to learn. And if we don't know this lesson, it doesn't matter what else we know. And our knowledge might be vast, 
maybe very deep on a number of subjects, but it will not carry us beyond the grave, and this lesson will. It's a lesson I can't teach you. How shall mortal man be justified before God? Even Socrates displays his brilliance by raising the question. Socrates in 500 B.C. said, It may be that deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. That expression of frustration shows great insight on Socrates because he recognized that a holy God has a problem forgiving sin because sin needs to be paid for. So this lesson that we're going to be experiencing in Job is a lesson that only God himself can teach. In James, we have a reference to Job. James was the Lord's brother that wrote the book in the Bible. It's very late in the New Testament, the last couple of, verses, chapters, a couple of books before the end. James uses this strange expression, the end of the Lord. In other words, the final lesson, the final key, if you will, the end of the Lord. He says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. That The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So the patience of Job is only a piece of the puzzle. We're going to discover this guy, Job, endured some astonishing things and acquitted himself surprisingly well. But be careful what the point of it is. If you believe that the point of this is the patience of Job, you're setting yourself up for a failure because you're setting yourself up for just another reason to have confidence in the flesh or oneself rather than to really gather the message that the book of Job really carries. And uh, what is that message? You remember, it's the message that started in the Garden of Eden where God asked the question of Adam and Eve, where art thou? And the answer, of course, in effect, that's implied, is lost. That's where we all are. And that's where Job was, even with his patience, even with his endurance and so forth. A couple of questions. What did the mighty famine have to do in Luke 15 to the son? What did it teach him? The, the prodigal son. There was a famine. He was in the far land. What did it teach him? It, teached him it, got, it brought him to the point where he could say to himself and ultimately to his father, I have sinned. There was another famine for Joseph's brethren, you may recall, in Genesis 44, where ultimately they go to Egypt and they acknowledge before Pharaoh, we are verily guilty. What did Nathan's parable to David, remember when Nathan went to David over Bathsheba and all that, um, what did that parable do for David? It caused David to confess, I have sinned against the Lord. When we get to the book of Isaiah, it starts right off in chapter 6 of Isaiah, where Isaiah sees, a, 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 sees the throne of God. And what's his response? I am In chapter 6, verse 5 verses, I am undone, I am unclean. It's interesting, every place in the Bible where, where one is confronted with God, his response isn't joy, it's terror in terms of realizing the gap between ourselves and a holy God. You say, well, gee, I'm not so bad. Maybe not, but compared to a holy God, you got big problems. It's not so much how evil you are, that's bad enough. It's how holy God is. Daniel, the same thing. Uh, in Daniel 10, he gets uh, confronted and he says, my comeliness has turned to corruption. He's, he's crushed. 
Remember what the miracle did for Peter in the New Testament in Luke 5. Jesus did a miracle and Peter fell and said, Depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. He, it confronted him with the reality of who he was. So if all we gather from this book is the patience of Job, which is the cliche, very common cliche, it'll only provide additional grounds for self-confidence and thus our own ultimate disappointment and depression because we each will fail to even be as good as Job did. So that's not the point of the book. Why do the innocent suffer? That's the usual cliche, and I'm always amused, because that, that issue won't really be answered, in a sense. You will not, when you finish Job, you won't really know why innocent suffer. In this case, you suffered because Satan had a challenge. <laughs> if Job overheard that, he'd say, you can't you challenge somebody else, please, you know. It reminds you of Tigvi in the famous musical, Fiddler on the Roof. But praise God, couldn't you just for a while choose somebody else, you know. There's a deeper level, too, and we're going to understand the relationship between Satan and God, widely misunderstood. You'll notice as we get into this, they're not equals. This isn't dualism as underlies the concepts behind the Star Wars, you know, the dualism, that there's good for, you know, dark side, good side, and that they're somehow in conflict. Nonsense. The good side uh, is in control. And uh, it's not dualism. They're not equal. Satan is subject to God all the way through. All the forces in this narrative are under God's control. There are no surprises to God. More than any other book in the Bible, we're going to be confronted with glimpses of the true greatness and majesty of God. So prepared, it's going to be a fun trip. Let's just jump right into Job chapter 1. You thought I could prattle for a full hour as an introduction, but I, I'm going to surprise you. Job chapter 1, verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, Uz, whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, Uz, there's a number of Uzes in the scripture, son of Shem, son of Noah. Uh, there was a land of king, it was the land of kings in Jeremiah's day, in Jeremiah 25. But also, Uz was also a neighbor of Edom. And, uh, you know, some scholars believe that Uz was a, in, in the Bashan area, the Golan Heights area, uh, south of Damascus. Others that it was Edom southeast of the Dead Sea. Others, and I think this is the way I lean for a lot of reasons, uh, they believe it was east of Edom in northern Arabia. This, most of this, I believe, happened in northern Arabia. And uh, this last view is supported by the fact that Job lived in the desert region, He's, yet the land was fertile for livestock and agriculture. The customs, vocabulary, and the geography all relate to northern Arabia so much so that that, to me, is the... The, the scholastically most justifiable conjecture as to actual location. Job was apparently one of the most prominent citizens in whatever region that is, and that's really what we're getting into. It says he was perfect. The word is Tom, which means upright, sincere, without guile. He was blameless, not sinless. I'm not saying he was sinless, but he was blameless, and he knew how to deal with his sin. He knew how to handle his sin. He does sacrifices and so forth. But we do see portrayed for us a complete, well-balanced man that feared God. And uh, that, in fact, if you don't yield to that point, if you don't really understand that Job was blameless, you'll miss the point of most of the discussion. As his friends try to probe and pin all his troubles on his shortcomings. Verse 2. We're getting, making progress. Let's see. We made one verse in 20 minutes. We, no, we'll be all right. Okay, verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons, excuse me, yeah, seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was, get this, the greatest of all the men of the East. Very prosperous guy. It's interesting that riches are not necessarily evil. Here's a good guy, one of the best in the land. He also happened to be the richest in the land, and uh, one of the richest. And uh, so that's a key point here. In verse 3, we have a list of the camels, the oxen, and so forth. That list is going to turn out to be very important for us. By the time we get to the end of the book, that list is going to reveal to you a surprise. A surprise that will prove, I believe, to be of great comfort. A comfort that most people miss, that is probably one of the most important comforts that you may experience in your life. And we'll, I'll, I'll leave it there until we get to chapter 42 and get into all that, but be, be ready for that. This closes with the phrase, the men of the east. That term, and he was usually associated with uh, the tribe of Kedar in northern portions of Arabia. It's uh, that area that you and I would know as Kuwait, incidentally. Not a big deal in passing. Verse 4, And his sons went and feasted in their houses everyone his day, and sent and called for the three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Now his sons, he has seven sons, what most Scholars infer what they mean here. They feasted on their birthday. Each one, each one of the sons had a special day, and they were having a feast. And and uh, each at a, each one had a unique time. And the three sisters went to eat and drink with them. Uh, we're going to discover fatherly concern. We're going to discover that Job was a family guy. Verse five, and it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, and Job sent and sanctified them. He rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. He's a man. Here's a, here's a guy who is a man of prayer. Very rich, very wealthy, very prosperous, a neat guy. But one of the focuses that we have on him, he's a man of prayer. In fact, one of his concerns is that his children may have inadvertently cursed God in their hearts. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music